The Arts of the San Joaquin Valley is a program that focuses on the arts community from Stockton to Merced and Foothill to Foothill. We talk with local authors, poets, playwrights, fine artists, actors, directors, filmmakers, dancers, musicians, crafters, and makers to learn more about their art and the arts-related events here in our part of the valley. We're your hosts, Linda Scheller, and I'm Sandy Graham. If you're involved in the greater arts community of our area and would like to be featured, we will share our contact information at the end of the show. Today our guest on Arts of the San Joaquin Valley is Richard Rios, an artist and writer who loves painting, drawing, playing guitar and singing, sculpting and writing short stories, poetry and plays. He holds a Master of Fine Arts degree from California College of Arts and Crafts in Oakland and has a master's degree in English from Cal State University Stanislaus. Now retired, he taught Chicano studies and English for 33 years at San Joaquin Delta College. In 1992, he was inducted into Stockton's Mexican American Hall of Fame and received the Stockton Top Artist Award in 2008. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for having me. First of all, what was it like for you growing up in Modesto? Linda, it was an adventure. I grew up in that small Mexican barrio neighborhood in South Modesto uh, among the hardworking, close-knit Mexican families. Growing up near orchards and canals, and especially the Tuolumne River was simply exciting. I loved working with the older Mexican men during summers, picking fruit, peaches, grapes, apricots in the valley, and pears as far north as Lakeport. I learned the language, I learned the culture, the food, and all of that would serve me well for my career later in life. Please tell us a little about your elementary, junior high, and high school education. I, I love school, and I was good in school. I was an avid reader, and I spend a lot of time over at the McHenry Library there in Modesto. I love to draw, and that made me a teacher's pet in many of my classes. I excelled in art, and all my teachers encouraged it. In my junior year in high school, I won a first place in a national poster contest, and that changed everything for me. Two of my art teachers, Isabel Barnett and Dale Thorsted, were instrumental in getting me to think about college, something I'd never done before, and introduced me to the College of Arts and Crafts in Oakland, where I would attend in 1957, and then later earn a master's degree in art in 1962. Who or what strongly inspired and influenced you? I really had no role models growing up. Uh, nobody I knew ever went to college, especially the Mexican kids from our barrio. My mother was a single mom and she raised six of us in a one bedroom house. She allowed me freedom to pursue whatever interested me. Uh, my two art teachers also opened doors for me. I read that you did a research paper called Mexico's Three Great Ones. How did that research paper that you were assigned in your junior year English class affect your life? Well, that was the first term paper I ever wrote in my life. And I was scared to death at the rigors of the assignment, you know, footnotes and bibliography and uh, all that. 
and and even what topic to write about. And one day when it was getting time for that assignment, I went to the library and I stumbled on a book on a group of muralists. And when I began to read about their lives, their works, and, and see the pictures of the murals, I felt a special connection to them being in Mexican descent myself. In all the research I did on that, in that project, I learned a little bit about Mexican history and how brutal the colonial period was, and especially the power of social art. And to that point, I'd always believed that art consisted of pretty little paintings of trees and barns and seascapes. And I learned who Diego Rivera was and Orozco, Siqueiros, and why they were considered great muralists. I got an A on that paper too. My teacher even read it in class. I had no idea that I could write. When and how did you begin to seriously pursue art? Well, even as a kid, I knew that I wanted to be an artist. I don't know how, but I knew. I was naturally good at drawing, and I spent hours copying figures out of comic books and magazines and drawing birds and animals from encyclopedias. Teachers in school gave me special tasks, drawing posters and decorating bulletin boards. But I never really took a, a real art class until high school. There, on my own, I studied the work of magazine illustrators like Norman Watwell, Ben Sean, and David Stone Martin. In high school, I had already, through that term paper, discovered the muralists like Diego Rivera, David Siqueiros, and Jose Orozco. How would you describe your experience at Oakland's California College of Arts and Crafts? It was incredible. Here I was with art students from all over the country. I'd been kind of a prima donna in high school, and now I had to compete with some of the most talented students. Our professors were amazing. Many of them taught at UC Berkeley and moonlighted on our small campus of about 600 students. I'll never forget some of my professors, Ralph Borge, master artist, Dr. Paul Schmidt, philosophy instructor. Despite learning art, we were drilled in academics, English, biology, philosophy, literature, psychology. I loved it all. I ate it up. Little did I know how much academics would serve me later on when I would become a teacher. Four years of art history was incredible. To study all the art from different cultures around the world was amazing. Where has your artwork been exhibited? Well, I haven't exhibited in any great quantity. I had shows at Galeria de la Raza uh, in the Mission District in San Francisco. Uh, I had exhibits of my work at the Mexican Museum of San Francisco, the Hagen Museum here in Stockton, Galeria de la Raza in Sacramento, and in our local Mexican Heritage Center here in Stockton. What kinds of art are you creating these days? Well, I don't do much art these days. When I last worked a few years ago, I did drawings, paintings, and ceramic sculptures. For the past seven years, I've been mostly writing, writing articles and essays for a magazine here in Stockton that we call Joaquin. I put together an art focus section in the magazine featuring the work of Latino artists. How do you usually get ideas and inspiration? 
Well, I get a lot of inspiration by looking at the work of other artists. Often ideas come just from being in tune with social issues. I like everything Mexican, so I gravitate to Native American motifs and colors and designs. My house is like a museum with Mexican handcrafts and art. Sometimes I fall on a theme and do a series of pieces around that theme. Could you give me an example of a theme that you pursued? In the middle 80s, uh, I, I fell on a theme of making little ceramic figurines of cholos and pachucos, zoot suitors. And it, it started all with a, some small figurines and they progressed to larger, more complex figures. I had a lot of success with those figures, a lot of people interested in seeing them and, and viewing them. And for the next three or four years, you know, I worked on a series, perhaps made as many as 50 figurines, uh, along with the help of my wife. And that theme was highly successful. It, it just, everywhere we went, uh, it was the subject of conversation. Richard, what might you say to a young person who wants to make their living as an artist? Well, I would say go slow. Uh, I, I really don't know few artists that actually make a living from their art. I would say just satisfy yourself with enjoying the making of art and maybe selling a piece now and then. It always feels good to sell uh, a piece. See art as a way of life that allows you to see and share beauty, and not as a job or a money-making uh, profession. Use it to make yourself happy and to make others happy. In 1972, you were hired to teach Chicano studies at Delta College. Please tell us about the courses you taught and the curriculum you created. I began as a Chicano literature instructor. There was no existing curricula at the time, no courses I could take. So I had to create my own curriculum from the few existing Chicano writers of the time. The discovery of these writers was really exciting for me. They were writing about the things that I had lived. Using their works in my classes was equally exciting. I had mostly Hispanic students and they readily identified with the themes and stories. Many of my students were non-readers and the stories, the novels, the poetry we read in class opened their eyes to the joy of reading. In time, I taught courses in Mexican art, uh, Chicano history, and also Chicano teatro or drama. Chicano studies originated in the late 60s. So what was it like to be one of the first instructors of Chicano studies? Well, I, I felt like a pioneer. At the time when I, I came on on Delta in 1972, we actually had an ethnic studies department, a complete department, and we were offering courses in Native American studies, um, Asian studies, Black studies, and Chicano studies was a part of the department. It was fantastic because it gave me the chance to teach a subject that I had actually lived, and I became a role model for my students. I took advantage of that inroad to connect with them. Not only did they know nothing about their culture and history, but they never even knew a Chicano teacher. Uh, one time, one of my Mexican immigrant students told me, you know, it's funny, Mr. Rios, I had to come to the U.S. to learn about my own culture. 
the teaching of Mexican and Chicano culture was a great tool for us also, a perfect way to grab the attention of our Hispanic students, many of them who had never been successful in school or had been readers, and introduced them to college, and, and it worked. Did it surprise you how little your Chicano students knew about their own cultural history? Yes, and I had to join the club because I knew very little, uh, despite the fact that I grew up in a Mexican household. My mom was from Torreon, Mexico. I knew very little about Mexico. I knew nothing about the history, the culture, the art. And um, what happened, I think, was really interesting in me becoming uh, a teacher of Chicano culture and history and uh, literature. I had to learn it myself. So in the time, the years that I, I was a teacher, I took summers off and I headed straight for Mexico. And uh, with my wife, you know, I uh, visited all the great cultural centers, art museums, photographing, taking slides, making notes. And I had to, you know, to become their teacher, I had to also learn about my own culture. Please tell us about co-founding the Mexican Heritage Center in Stockton. Yeah, it, it happened uh, over a period of time. During the 1970s, I kept close contact with a couple of my college buddies, artists uh, Jose Montoya and Esteban Villa from Sacramento. Uh, and they had put together a group uh, that came to be known as RCAF. Uh, I think it was something like the Rebel Chicano Artist Front. Uh, in time, uh, as a joke, it became known as the Royal Chicano Air Force. Uh, it was a coalition of Chicano artists uh, and they put together a cultural center there teaching um, Barrio art. And I wanted to do the same thing here in Stockton. And teaching at Delta, I met a couple of other Chicano artists and teachers, Raul Mora and Rudy Garcia. We began exhibiting together on and off campus, you know, for Cinco de Mayo and Dia de los Muertos, et cetera. And, and we soon brought together a group of our students who excelled in art. We needed a name, so we came up with Artistas del Valle, which means artists of the valley. I began to push the idea that like the RCAF, we needed a cultural center and a gallery here in Stockton. We took that step in 1995 in the little beat up downtown Stockton space and it became known as the Mexican Heritage Center. And over the years, we held a, some very beautiful and excellent exhibitions uh, showcasing the work of professional and student artists and presenting special exhibits for cultural events like Cinco de Mayo or Dia de los Muertos or Las Posadas, Christmas celebrations. What is barrio art? We use the word barrio to describe uh, neighborhoods that are predominantly Mexican in nature. So going into the barrio uh, and taking the experience of art to all of these young and old people who had never had uh, any contact with art in their lives and giving them the, the chance to create, to learn, uh, and in the process discovered uh, the hidden talents in many of the, uh, the individuals that we reached through these barrio art schools. This is Arts of the San Joaquin Valley on KCBP Radio. I'm your host, Linda Scheller, and our guest today is Richard Rios. 
when and what did you start writing? You know, in a way, I, I can say that it started with that first term paper in high school. Uh, when I went on to college, you know, I would write dozens of more term papers for all of my courses, research papers, and I loved it. I enjoyed it. Uh, the, the experience of expressing myself in writing, I was good at it, you know, doing the research, learning so much about subjects that I knew nothing about and writing about them uh, was really important. Uh, more specifically, I can say it started when I met Jose Montoya, uh, a student, uh, was also a student at uh, California College of Arts and Crafts. Uh, I met him sometime in the late 50s, and Jose was already writing poetry at the time. When I read some of this, his stuff, I, I was floored. Uh, he was writing about the barrio, about zoot suitors, pachucos, cholos, about farm workers, and using the language of the barrio, formal Spanish, Spanglish, and English all mixed together. I began to write my own poems then, imitating Jose's style at first, but with stories of my own. Uh, now I'm writing for Joaquin Magazine, and of course, that keeps me busy writing. I understand also you were stationed in Germany and, and writing there? Uh, yeah, immediately after I uh, received my master's degree at, from CCAC in 1972, I enlisted for three years in the military and wound up in Germany. Uh, and that, that was my dream that, that I, I could go to Europe and uh, it gave me the opportunity to see some of the great museums and, and the artwork of some of the famous artists that we had read about and studied in college. And uh, I wound up with an office job. And it, during those two and a half years that I was stationed there, uh, I did an awful lot of writing in the spaces between uh, my work. I had a typewriter at my disposal. I had a stack of paper that I wanted to use. And I wrote letters and poems and uh, sent them back to my friends uh, in, the, in the States, my teachers. Uh, and when I came back, I had a stack of material. And also because you were in a completely different location with a very different culture and language, it probably gave you a fresh perspective. Yes, it did. I had uh, re read a book in college, uh, Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Maria Rilke. Ah. And that greatly uh, moved me and touched me. And so I wound up doing much of the same, writing letters to my friends, offering them advice on writing and art and ideas, and, and uh, pretty much fancied myself much like Rainer and his great book. I understand you've written and directed a number of original plays as director of the Teatro. Please describe a few of your favorites and tell us where they were performed. Well, my friend uh, um, and a fellow artist, Raul Mora, here in Stockton, you know, flatters me by referring to me as a Chicano Renaissance man. And, and uh, you know, here, here I go, uh, becoming a, a director of a theater group. Uh, I had no idea how to do it. I had never done it before. I never studied drama before. But I became aware of, of the power of theater uh, with groups like uh, San Francisco Mime Troupe uh, back in the 70s. And, of course, uh, the work of uh, Luis Valdez, uh, Teatro Campesino. So when the opportunity to take over the Chicano theater class at Delta College came in the mid-80s, 
Uh, I had already worked with a couple of the previous directors of the class. In the years that I directed the teatro, we performed skits and plays on campus, uh, at local middle and high schools, churches, and even went to the jails to perform. Two of my best remembered works are The Death of Beto Perez, a play about a cholo who dies gangbanging, and he's brought to life by La Muerte, or death to see the pain and all the, that his lifestyle caused to his loved ones in life. The other was uh, a play, a full-length play, that we called Dolor de Perdonar, which means in Spanish, the pain of forgiving. And it was a story of a dysfunctional family and the macho tug-of-war between a rebel son and his traditional Mexican father. Could you please tell us about Cho y Lo? <laughs> yes. While I was teaching Chicano drama at, at Delta, one of my students, uh, Richard Zapata, came to me one day with uh, an idea. He had a, drawn up a comic character strip with two uh, cholos, street savvy guys, and he called them Cho and Lo, a play on the word Cholo, right? <laughs> and uh, he asked me what I thought about him, and I, and I looked at his... Uh, his drawings, and, and uh, was impressed. You know, they were two funny characters, maybe along the line of Cheech and Chong. And uh, so it just so happened that at the time, I was working uh, with one of my students who had just taken over uh, a radio station uh, at KUOPFM at the uh, University of Pacific. And uh, he took over a two-hour program that aired on Sundays calling the uh, program Chicano Community Program. He invited me to come on the show to, to be interviewed. And, and uh, in time, I began doing little skits on the show, reading poetry and so forth. So it just so happened that at that time when uh, Richard Zapata came to me with this idea, uh, I proposed the idea of turning uh, the Chon Lo uh, comic strip into two radio characters. And uh, it worked out beautifully. Uh, we would come to the radio station and do it live right over the air. Uh, and the episodes uh, began being, uh, you know, very simple things, uh, dialogues back and forth between the two of us. Uh, in time, we added additional readers, complete with sound effects, you know, stomping feet, slamming doors, pots and pans rattling in the background. <laughs> You know, before we knew it, we had an incredible following around Stockton and, and Tracy and the whole area. And we'd become, you know, almost famous. While our skits were, you know, like mostly humorous, we included uh, serious topics, uh, staying in school, you know, anti-gang, anti-gang-banging um, you know, messages, anti-drug messages. And so we got to a point where we started recording the uh, programs, uh, pre-recording them, and even adding uh, professional sound effects. Uh, so it, it was a, a great run, two or three years that uh, we aired over that program. And then in time, Richard and I uh, decided to do the Chon Lo character live. And we would go to the schools and dress up like a couple of crazy guys with baggy pants and bandanas and uh, we'd fill the auditoriums in those schools and the kids would go wild. We really, really were onto something. 
Why did you decide to get a second master's degree, this time in English at CSU Stanislaus? As I mentioned earlier, I started teaching uh, Chicano studies uh, at Delta in 1972. And uh, sometime in the 1980s, our department, our ethnic studies department, uh, including Chicano studies, was dissolved. And each of us was sent to become part of the existing division, depending on the subject we taught. For example, our Chicano history instructor was sent to the history department. And I, because I was teaching Chicano literature, was sent to the English department. And there I became good friends with the division chair, Marianne Cox, who invited me to join her department as an English teacher, providing that I went back to school and received a master's degree in English. I wasn't that excited about going back to college after 15 years of teaching. But uh, once I enrolled uh, at CSU Stanislaus, I loved it. I enjoyed going back to school, writing papers, uh, sitting in classes, listening to lectures. And um, I received my master's in 1985. I like to joke with my English classes, telling them that literacy had gotten so bad in America that now they had Mexicans teaching them how to read and write English. <laughs> That's great. So after earning your master's in English at Stan State, then you taught English at Delta for a number of years. Which courses exactly did you teach? Uh, I taught pretty much the gamut. And one of my favorite courses to teach was film as literature. I also, uh, in, my, in my last few years, I think from around the year 2000 uh, until I retired, I became the English instructor for the Puente program a statewide program that pretty much um, reaches out to uh, Hispanic students who are uh, below level in their reading and writing. Uh, they spend a, an entire year with us. Uh, those who pass the uh, lower level course go on to English 1A. And the camaraderie, the, the familia, the sense of family and that, that developed uh, as a result of those courses was just fantastic. What would you say to someone who is skeptical or unsure about earning an English degree, especially because everyone else is saying, oh, you can make so much more money with a degree in STEM or business administration? That's a tough question. <laughs> uh, I would say that literacy, the skill of communicating in reading and writing, just has to be one of the most critical for survival in our own society. Whether, you know, one becomes an English teacher or a writer or even a waiter, uh, these skills pay off with dividends that just, just can't be measured by money alone. Um, I recall one incident where um, a student was trying to find a space in my already jam-packed English class. He pulled me aside, Mr. Rios, I have to take this English class. I, I just have to. And um, you know, I asked him why. And he told me that he had just got hired on at Delta College to their police department. And that uh, when he went to write his first report on some incident that had happened on campus, he was called in by his supervisor who told him, you know, I don't have any idea what <laughs> you wrote on this piece of paper. Oh. And if you want to stay with this department, you better go back and take an English class. That was a great story. Which are some of your favorite authors and books to read or teach? 
Well, I mentioned already Jose Montoya, and um, I was um, happy to use many of his uh, individual poems and a couple of the books, uh, anthologies of his work. Francisco Alarcón out of Sacramento, he just passed away a couple of years ago. A fantastic poet, beautiful reader, had this gorgeous uh, Ricardo Montalban accent and his beautiful, powerful poems. Alurista, it uh, goes by the singular name. His poems greatly inspired me, and, and they were fun to teach with uh, my students. Luis Rodriguez um, you know, from Los Angeles, a uh, powerful writer, uh, poetry, really hard-hitting social poems about growing up in gangs uh, in the barrios of uh, Los Angeles. Rodolfo Gonzalez, uh, you know, who wrote I Am Joaquin, the great epic poem that I used throughout the years that I taught. Uh, Wilfred Owen, English poet. Sterling Brown, Black poet. Uh, Edwin Arlington Robinson. These are poets that all hit me in a real special way as a reader. Uh, and I wanted to share with my students. And a lot of them, when I come to think of it, uh, wrote about social issues. And, and that's really the kind of writing and the uh, poetry that uh, I think touched me the deepest. Uh, writers like uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, Federico Garcia Lorca. Uh, I used his play Blood Wedding in, in my courses. Uh, I had a, a friend of mine once who read a poem by Federico Garcia Lorca, but he read it to me in Spanish and the poems that I had read were in English. And when I heard it in Spanish, I thought to myself, wow, no wonder uh, Spanish is uh, a romance language. Powerful, powerful. Uh, and also, you know, the songwriters, the poetry of Bob Dylan, Tom Waits, all these people somehow have touched me. This is KCBP Wesley, 95.5 FM, and streaming at kcbpradio.org. You're listening to Arts of the San Joaquin Valley with your host, Linda Scheller, and today's guest, Richard Rios. You've published a book of poetry, Burritos and Bologna Sandwiches. How would you describe your poetry? The book, um, Burritos and Bologna Sandwiches, was, was a real homemade booklet. Uh, I published it at, at Kinko's. Uh, and, and just I was just anxious to see uh, some of my poems in print, you know, what they would look like. And uh, later in, in my book, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, my poems took on another shape. You know, I, I like to refer to myself as a Chicano poet. Uh, and and uh, many of my poems deal with uh, the Chicano experience. I'm prone to use uh, Spanish and Spanglish in my poems because I find sometimes that the Spanish word, uh, when compared to the English word that I need in a poem is much richer, has a, a more richer sound, and sometimes even more descriptive than the English words. So I like to combine the two and, and, uh, uh, and play uh, with both languages. How would you say your poetry has changed over the years? You know, I started out, I think, like probably a lot of writers, a lot of poets do, trying to say something you know, and say something important, something vital. And uh, so the early works, of course, were, were a bit stiff and, and contrived, you know. 
And I think that uh, in time, I grew uh, fearless. Uh, and, and as I began to hear more poets and engage in poetry readings and so on, my poetry became much looser and more, uh, you know, adventuresome. And so, you know, now I feel like I'm at a point in my writing that I have absolute control over what I want to say, uh, how to say it, when to say it. Uh, and it's just a great feeling to be at that place after many, many years of, you know, trying this style, trying to imitate that poet over there, trying to sound like this guy or trying to sound like that one. Uh, and now I know I'm me. Would you please read us one of your poems? Yes, I'd be glad to. This poem is written kind of uh, as a flashback to the essay, that the term paper I had written in high school about Los Tres Grandes, the three great ones, Orozco, uh, Rivera, and Siqueiros. It's entitled Para Los Tres Grandes, for the three great ones. And it's kind of an homage to these great painters from Mexico and kind of, uh, you know, uh, sings praises about them, about uh, their paintings, and about what they must have suffered in terms of being artists, painting about unconventional themes. Gracias, Diego, for your brush that showed his dignity to the bigoted masses for whom an Indio, an Indian, was subhuman. Un indio patarajada, barefoot, and the grandeur of Tenochtitlan, with its magnificent marketplaces, canals, and palaces, the Constantinople of the Americas, Cortez said. You painted him small in stature, dark, almost hideous, standing alongside the pale white Europeans who towered over him who called him an Indian, gente sin razón, man without reason, in hues of brown, rust, umber, yellow ochre, terracotta red man with a hooked nose, yet a nobility emanates from his burnt sienna frame. We can feel the rage of your brush and your condemnation of the envy, greed, and avarice of the priests, the entrepreneurs, the conquistadores, vultures in wolves' clothing, birds of prey, carrion creatures and bloodsuckers, readying to extract the very life from creatures they said God created to be dominated. You painted him hanging from trees, whipped and beaten into submission, driven like oxen to cultivate the very land stolen from him. And you endured the ire and insults of the rubios, the white man, upper classes who detested this shameful exposition on public walls of the genocide of the brown man, this holocaust of the Americas, this contemptuous stain on Mexico. Gracias también. Thank you also, David Alfaro Siqueiros for your portrayal of the atrocities committed against the red man of the Americas. Acts done in the name of decency, in the name of progress, in the name of God. Who cannot feel the agony of Cuauhtémoc tied to a slab of stone 
and his fear of the vicious dogs bearing their fangs as conquistadores in steel torch his feet to enforce him to confess where the gold was hidden. His eyes reek with torment. Do you think I am on a bed of roses? He tells a countryman who cries out in pain alongside him. Your figures leap out from the walls, plunging at us, defying gravity, defying perspective. You weren't satisfied with flat figures of two dimension only. Yours were to be looked up at or down on, and your brush strokes were those of a calculated madman, deftly pushing paint to its limits, heaping in gobs, not cleanly like Diego. But it's in the eyes, David, that you captured the pain. They are deep, dark, glossy eyes, victims of fat politicos and political coyotes who stole what was not theirs. The eyes of those who bravely fought oppression with sticks, rocks, and machetes. The Pancho Villas, the Benito Juarez's, the Miguel Hidalgo's, the Morelos's, and Emiliano Zapata's laying down their lives for generations yet to be born. You two made public, which should have been kept in darkness, in the shadows, and you created an art that was purely Mexican, like beans, like tequila, like maguey, like the tortilla, not salon art, pretty, calculated, orderly, with vases of pretty flowers and apples on a plate, but art of war, of revolution, of justice. And gracias también, José Clemente Orozco, for the fire in your work, for the thrusting bayonets, the legions of marching soldiers winding their way through battlefields of chemical gas, modern genocide, white men in tails and top hats, drink toast to the stock market, surrounded by grinning, toothless prostitutes wearing gold rings. Campesinos struggle mercilessly against an angry sky. A barren landscape of maguey stabs the sky. Men of all stations contorted, distorted, misshapen. A Franciscan priest leans to kiss a leper. You were angry, you were offended, you were tormented, and you forced us to see death in all its shapes and sizes, in science and technology designed for killing. In Goya-esque fashion, you showed us disasters of war the agony of broken, pierced bodies, the rape of Latin America, a torment of the masses in blacks, reds, crimsons, and black, trampling the natives underfoot, your brush, a weapon, a knife, slashing at the swine-faced politicos, counting their blood money squeezed from the veins of the poor. A work of art is never negative. Being a work of art makes it constructive, you said. Yes, ustedes tres grandes, you three greats, redefined art, turning it into a weapon against complacency, ignorance, myth, and lies. Gracias, compadres. Though your work shames us and humbles us, we sing to you. Estas son las mañanitas que cantaba el rey David. Wow, I love okay. it. Uh, okay. That the um, that uh, last verse which I sang mm -hmm. uh, is the traditional Mexican birthday song, or it's a verse from that song. Uh -huh. And I used it at the end of the poem because 
I wanted my poem to be a, a celebration of the birthday of, you know, Mexican art. Oh, I love it. That is so marvelous. Thank you very much. That, that I had a, a great time writing that poem. It took, you know, it, it, it's the construct of uh, a lot of editing and back and forth. And, and what I did in order to write it, I actually took the books of plates of, of their art, of the art of Orozco and Siqueiros uh, Rivera. And, and I looked at actual paintings. Uh, and so my descriptions in the poem the images that I use, most of them are taken directly from one, two, three, four murals of each of them. Uh, and that was fun. Uh, I, I've done that in, in several of my poems. Uh, I write about a specific person. I write about a specific book, about a specific work of art. You're listening to Arts of the San Joaquin Valley on KCBP Community Radio. Our guest today is the artist and writer Richard Rios. What is your typical writing process? You know, it's a, a little funny, but uh, a lot of times I come up with a title first. For some reason or another, uh, a title strikes me. And um, yeah, it later becomes a poem. I don't worry too much about punctuation or spelling. You know, obviously the first time around, I, I just want to get it down first, uh, the idea. Editing is, is the real fun for me. Uh, sometimes I jot an idea for a story or a poem, I jot it down in one or two sentences. And I save that for some time later when I can come back and I'm looking for something to write. And uh, so sometimes I have that uh, short phrase there that um, came to me at a particular point. And then I later proceed to write out the poem or the, or the story. Uh, I did that a lot with uh, the writing of my book. Do you usually write it by hand first? Well, I'm fixed on my computer now. And so I know, I know enough. If I write it down on a piece of paper somewhere, then I forget where I left it. <laughs> and so uh, I've learned to go to my computer and I have a little uh, folder where I just keep ideas down. What advice would you give to aspiring writers? Well, I would just say, you know, write regularly. Yeah, don't force it uh, when you feel like writing do it. Uh, save it on your computer, no matter what, whether it's complete or incomplete. Don't fall in love with everything you write. I think that's a big sin a lot of us commit, you know. Uh, we ever fall in love not only with every piece we write, but we fall in love with every sentence. Don't tell yourself, now I am going to write a poem, or now I am going to write a story. <laughs> Just write until you get a body of work, uh, and later on you can decide whether it should be a poem or a story. Uh, worry about form and spelling later when you edit. Learn how to enjoy editing. It's great fun to make a sentence better, to make a paragraph more interesting, to make a word clearer on a second or third time around. In 2012, your memoir, Songs from the Barrio, was published. Please tell us about your book. At the time, uh, a few years before that, I began a blog, which I called Chicanismos. Uh, which means uh, like bits and pieces of something Chicano. And uh, there I, I met a fellow blogger from Arizona. Uh, he's a high school teacher. And he had just self-published his first novel. And uh, when I looked at it and, and read it, I was really excited about it. So with his guidance and his encouragement, he's, he loved my work. 
uh, I was motivated to write and publish my own book, something that, I, that I'd wanted to do for years, but uh, which teaching, you know, grading uh, student papers just prohibited. Uh, so now that I was retired, I had all the time I needed, no excuses. My book is an autobiography uh, focusing on my formative years growing up in that small Mexican barrio in South Modesto uh, during the 40s and 50s. Uh, much of it just tells stories about my childhood, a kind of Chicano Huckleberry Finn, if you will, and, and about the role my mother played in my life. It also includes poetry. Uh, and since it's published, I've done a bunch of readings and presentations at schools, museums, and library. And that's been great fun. And some schools have even picked up uh, my book as a reader uh, for their courses. And uh, those that have, if they're local, uh, I promise uh, an on-site visitation uh, so that their students can meet, you know, quote unquote, the author. Would you please read us an excerpt from Songs from the Barrio? This excerpt that I'm about to read is entitled A Rite of Passage. And, and it's turned out to be one of the favorites, uh, you know, as I go around and talk to people who have read my book or uh, visit classes that have uh, finished reading the book. It's a story that, uh, that tells about something that happened when I was about seven years old. One of my older brothers had gone to a carnival in, in Modesto and, and he won uh, a chick, baby chick. And he brought it home in a little box, you know, the kind that's sort of you put Chinese food in or something like that. Uh, and and uh, we thought it was a chicken, you know, and so my mom never really raised animals, but we kept it and we built a, a pen for it in the backyard and it grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And before we knew, uh, knew it, uh, it wasn't a chick, it was a turkey. And so one day my mom sends me out there to kill the turkey for uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, and wow, I had never killed an animal in my life. And so um, this, this is an excerpt from that story. I'd often seen the men in our barrio slaughter a pig by tying its hind legs to a tree, slitting the throat and catching the stream of blood into a pail. And I recalled cringing from the piercing squeal or being revolted by the sight of blood splurting from a chicken whose head had just been chopped off with an ax running wildly through somebody's yard. However, while all this disgusted me, I tried my best to be un hombre as it was culturally expected of me. But deep inside, I was a pacifist, a lover, not a killer, except for the birds that I'd shot with my BB gun or a slingshot. As I stood outside the cage, I prayed for deliverance for both myself and the pitiful bird inside. Suddenly, a giant white cumulus cloud seemed to hover overhead. I waited, but no messages or signs emanated from it. I cursed my brother Jesse for having brought this turkey into my life. Where was he now? Mustering every bit of courage with the hatchet dangling from my hand, I slowly opened the gate and stepped inside, not having the slightest idea how I would go about killing this gigantic bird. Should I grab it by the neck and then try to hack its head off? Should I go for the heart? Maybe I could throw the hatchet at him like they did in the movies and hope it would stick in his chest. The turkey retreated to the far corner of the pen 
eyeing me suspiciously, in tune with every movement and sound I made. We readied for war, our gazes locked in desperation. The bird never once taken his eyes off me. Oddly, I'd never noticed how big this turkey was. He was as tall as I was and probably weighed as much. And here I was, this skinny, 75-pound little boy about to commit murder on a defenseless animal. Besides, I never really liked eating turkey that much. I wanted to run, to hide, but it was too late for that. Whitey, our neighbor's dog, saw me and started to bark. This was it, the moment of my transformation from boyhood to manhood, and there was no escaping it. Then, in a moment of false bravado, I lifted the ax above my head and lunged at the creature. When it let out the most hair-raising shriek I've ever heard, he spread his enormous wings and he leaped into the air and claws bare charged me. Clutching the hatchet, I ran for my life, narrowly slamming the gate behind me. But just as I stood safely outside the pen, my heart pounding in my chest, white with terror, languishing in defeat, thanking God for having spared my life, I saw the turkey suddenly stagger, lose its balance, and crash to the ground. I watched in horror at his lifeless body. Had he fainted? Had he suffered a heart attack, died of fright? I would never know, but sure as hell, the bird was dead. I looked around to see if anyone had witnessed my shame. I had miserably failed my initiation into manhood. I would be the laughing stock of the men in the barrio, but no one had seen, not even my mom. Whitey, stop barking. I apologized to the turkey. I looked up, but the cloud overhead had dissipated. There is a God, I thought. As I slinked back into the house, I said nonchalantly, Yalo mate, mom, having hidden the bloodless hatchet on the porch outside. No tienes hambre? My mom asked when I passed on the turkey that Thanksgiving day. Nah, mom, no tengo mucha, I said taking an extra serving of frijoles and tortillas. I have faked manhood ever since. <laughs> oh, that's great. That, that's a, a real popular story when I read it. I, I've been to some of the, the elementary schools, you know, middle schools, and, and I read that story to the kids, and they are just fascinated. They love it. They, and the, all the hands pop up at the end of it. How did the turkey die? <laughs> I said, That's the whole point of the story. I have no idea. He just killed over, you know. <laughs> An act of God. <laughs> but thank God he did, because I, yeah. you know, I would never have been able to kill him. Where can our listeners find your book? Uh, they can find my book on Amazon. But, but I would prefer that if someone would want to purchase uh, it, that they contact me personally, because, uh, you know, Amazon royalties leave much to be desired. So I can be contacted at, at my email, which is Ricky R, R-I-C-K-Y-R, lowercase, uh, 726 at hotmail.com. Or someone can direct message me on Facebook. I also have a, a Facebook page, Songs from the Madre, the same name as my book, which viewers can visit. And check out, you know, some of the things I've done with my book, you know, uh, since uh, 2012 when I, I was published. 
uh, all the readings, presentations I've done, uh, I've documented on that Facebook page. Are you considering writing another book? No, <laughs> I, I'm tired. Uh, that, that was a lot of work, a, a good work. You know, it was good work. It took me a couple of years to put it all together. And I've thought about it and people ask about it. And, and I think it'd be worth writing it. But uh, honestly, I don't have the energy to do it, I think. Uh, Self-marketing is a lot of work. And so uh, I opted to self-publish, which was the easiest route to go. And I opted to self-market. Uh, so what I do is I, I order the books from uh, Amazon and they give me a special author price on them. And then I have to do all the footwork, going out to the schools, making phone calls, inviting myself to whatever uh, event there is. And uh, how would, you, would you like somebody to read some stories or poems in your event? And so it's a lot of work, but it, it's been, that, it was actually more fun to do all this than it was to write the write the book. Looking back on your 33 years of teaching, what are some of your fondest memories? I have so many fond memories, so many things, uh, individual things that I remember. Uh, I remember specific students. I remember my failures as a teacher. I remember my successes. You know, all, all those moments when you see a, a light turn on in, in the mind of one of your students when they finally get it, uh, whatever it is, uh, the, the joys of, of meeting the students somewhere, sometime afterwards, years after. You know, I, I'm in Walmart and a student walks up to me. Are you Mr. Rios? Yes. Oh, I was in your class in 1995, 1987. Uh, and, and often I, I don't even I don't remember them, uh, but they remember me. Uh, thank you, Mr. Rios, for all that you taught me. You were one of the hardest teachers I ever had. But now I realize why I understand. And I just want to thank you for, uh, you know, having opened my eyes to reading, to school, to higher education. Uh, those are just beautiful memories. Uh, one was uh, about a. A student, I, I was teaching uh, Chicano literature class, no, Chicano history, uh, out at the California Youth Authority. And I don't know exactly when. It was probably uh, the late 70s. He was a young man incarcerated uh, at the Youth Authority. And, and uh, he stood out in my class. It was an amazing guy, you know, one of the best students I've had. Read every assignment, got A's on his exams, etc. Uh, when he uh, was released from the Youth Authority, he came to Delta, finished off, uh, you know, his minimum requirements, transferred to Sac State. And I didn't see him. I didn't hear anything from him for years. And uh, I go to a, a conference in Los Angeles. I'm sitting there peddling some of my books and poems. And here comes this handsome young dude, you know, dressed in a suit, uh, carrying a briefcase. And I'll be damned if it wasn't able, uh, this student that I ran into at the Youth Authority. And he had now become a counselor at uh, Sac State. Uh, beautiful stories. And another of, of a young man um, came to my uh, Chicano Lit class at Delta and, and completely lost track of him. Uh, years and years later, I get an invitation to um, his uh, uh, graduation ceremony uh, in Sacramento, UC Davis. Uh, and he's getting a doctorate degree in, in education. My God, I, I couldn't even, I didn't even know who he was. I looked at his name. 
I told my wife that he is inviting me to his uh, graduation. Are you going? And I said, nah, I don't think so. I'll drive all the way to Sacramento. It's hot. You know, da, 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 da. And she says, how can you say that? I mean, here's this one of your students inviting you. Da, da. And so I go, you're right. You're absolutely right. So he had reserved a, a seat in one of the front rows of the auditorium. I go there, and uh, when the uh, entourage uh, marches on the stage, you know, all the professors, and then I, I see this little short Mexican kid. I'm wondering, is that him? Is that Enrique? I think it is. I think it is. I, I'm trying to remember who he is and so on. Uh, anyway, turns out that he's, he's also the, the student speaker at the graduation. Oh. He gets up there. And he starts to talk, and uh, he said, I want to uh, introduce you all to one of my professors in college, Mr. Richard Rios. Would you please stand? Good Lord. I stood, and there was tears in my eyes, and he thanked me, uh, you know, in front of all uh, the audience and for having opened his, uh, the door to what he had become. That's beautiful. Richard, in what ways do you think art is important to an individual? You know, um, my mom never wanted me to be an artist, you know, when I told her I wanted to go into art. She said, what for? Uh, artists only get famous after they're dead. And, uh, you know, she was right. I think art is one of the most beautiful ways of life, not a career or a profession, but a way of life. The arts are amazing, whether it's music, whether it's, you know, dance, whether it's drama or theater or uh, writing, literature all of those avenues. And I dabbled in a few different ones. Uh, music, I played guitar, are all enriching, so enriching. You know, whether you ever succeed making money or arriving at some kind of fame, the arts offer you a beautiful path through life, uh, opening these pleasures of seeing the richness of nature and beauty and all that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> Uh, and none of that can be measured necessarily uh, by success or fame or money. You, you can't lose and you know, encourage your kids to sing, to dance, to paint, to marvel, to create and be, and be part of creation. It's our opportunity as human beings, I think, to create uh, alongside the, uh, nature and the creator himself or herself. Well, thank you so much, Richard. This has just been such a pleasure. Thank you, Linda. This was a, a treat. The Arts of the San Joaquin Valley has been produced and hosted by Linda Scheller and Sandy Graham and features music by Kilobot, Waves of Wonder from the album Jazzy Lazy. You can learn more about their music at www.kilobot.de. That's K-I-E-L-O-B-O-T dot D-E. If you would like us to feature your art-related event, or if you would like to be featured on our show, contact us at arts at kcbpradio.org. Stay tuned for more great community radio brought to you by local volunteers, the Modesto Peace Life Center, and listeners like you. Please visit kcbpradio.org to show your support and to learn more about your community radio station. Catch you next time on the Arts of the San Joaquin Valley.